Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, this morning as I'm beginning the message, I want to ask you a question. When you think about God, when you think about how God looks at you, do you think that God is angry? Do you think that God is satisfied with you? Do you think that God is happy with you, or do you see an angry God? When I was in college, I was witnessing to a man, and I may have already told this story before, but it's so good I'm going to tell it again. Uh, I was talking to a friend in college, and he said, I was trying to witness to him. He said, you know, God, the God of the Old Testament, he's just a God of anger and a God of wrath. And I don't know how anyone could serve that kind of God. And I I was standing there with a friend who was also a professing believer. And as I was beginning to try to explain some things, this friend of mine stepped in and went, well, actually, okay, so you got the God of the Old Testament and then you got Jesus. He, He was... God the Father was really angry, and so the son said, hey, yo, Dad, let me step in here and fix things and make it all right. And actually, that's not good doctrine. That's not what happened. Um, Yes, God is, no doubt, a, a holy God. God, no doubt, deals with sin. He doesn't take sin lightly. There is going to be a day, as we talk about, There is going to be a day of judgment when we will stand before the Lord and give an account. But, you know, as we've been studying the book of Genesis, from chapter 1 to up to chapter 17, I am not seeing, and I hope you aren't either, I'm not seeing a God who leads with anger and with wrath. Now, there is anger and wrath coming to those who will not repent and turn from sin. But that is not what God leads with. Think about it, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, when they brought sin and death into the world, did God crush them? No. He gave them salvation. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, did God crush him? No. He offered him salvation. How about for a hundred years, God preached through Noah to repent. There is a flood coming. And also... The Tower of Babel, God, in, even when they, everyone rebelled against God and said, we're going to build a city so we can make a name for ourselves, God, in his mercy, dispersed them so that they would not be totally destroyed. And then we've been studying Abram for the past several weeks, and I'm seeing that again, that God is not leading with anger, but he is a God who is patient, he's a God who's merciful, and he's a God who longs. Do you see this, that he longs to call his creation back to himself? That's what God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament is about. He's the same God. He hasn't changed. And today, in today's um, passage, it's been 13 years since God last spoke with Abram, as far as we know. Um, God has promised Abraham or Abram, that he's going to have a son. And remember, last week, as Pastor Terry was preaching, we learned that Abram and Sarah came up with their own plan to try to make this happen through Sarah's servant, Hagar. And we know that that's turned into a big mess. But God does not leave Abram. 
God does not leave Abram. Thirteen years later, in our passage, he returns to him. And when he comes to him, it's interesting that he does not introduce himself as, I am Jehovah. I am the God who saves. He doesn't introduce himself as, I am Elohim, the God who created the universe and who set everything into motion the way that it works. Instead, here's how he introduces himself. He says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I have complete power. I, there is nothing that I can, cannot do. And you know, when we approach God, we need to approach him understanding this, that he is God Almighty. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is kind. Yes, God is patient and he's good. But listen, God is not like us on the same level. God is God Almighty. He is to be feared and he is to be honored and he is to be respected. This reminds me of parenting. You know, parenting. One of the, the biggest mistakes that I see in our culture of parents, is parents, when we have children, parents wanting to be peers with their children, wanting to be best friends with their children from the get-go, out of the womb. We're going to be best friends. Now, as our children mature and grow, I believe that it should be, if, if we are following God and they are following God, we should enter into a, uh, a relationship where we do become peers. But as we are raising our children, we need to train them that we are not peers as we are parenting. We need to raise our children to love authority, to understand authority, to have a healthy fear of authority. Because as they mature, as they mature, they will, uh, as, if they decide to follow God, it will help them to transition into a healthy relationship, understanding that God is the ultimate authority. And so as God Almighty... He comes to Abraham and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't know if that verse is up on the, on the screen, but when God says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, is, what kind of spirit is God coming to him in? Is God angry? Is God saying, listen, obey me because I'm God Almighty? You know, because Abraham already knows, he knows he's already blown it, at least twice, right? When they went down to Egypt, he lied about his wife. So he's come back up, so he's, gets, he's got another chance with God. God's like, come on, let's keep going. And then last week we see that he takes Sarah's uh, servant and the whole situation with Hagar blows up. He's already got two strikes on him. And so is, is Abraham now, is, this, is he coming to the point where he's got one more strike? That, and so he has to tiptoe around with God and just hope that he doesn't strike out again because if he does, God is going to cast him aside and withdraw his covenant from him? You know, that's a question that we need to be asking. How do you see God in, as you relate to him? Do you see that, that your performance is what gets him to accept you, that, that, you uh, that, that his blessings and his acceptance of you is tied to the way you perform, 
That is something that many Christians, myself, have to deal with. And there's a book by a guy named Jerry Bridges called The Disciplines of Grace. This is a book that I would highly recommend you read. The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. Because he gives a helpful example that I'm going to read to you about uh, two types of scenarios, as the way that we see God. He says, consider two radically different days in your own life. The first one is a good day spiritually for you. You get up promptly when the alarm goes off and have a refreshing and profitable quiet time as you read your Bible and pray. Your plans for the day generally fall into place, and you somehow sense the presence of God with you. To top it off, you unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is truly searching. As you talk with the person, you silently pray for the Holy Spirit to help you and to also work in your friend's heart. The second day is just the opposite. You don't rise, arise at the first ring of your alarm. Instead, you shut it off and go back to sleep. When you finally awaken, it's too late to have a quiet time. You hurriedly gulp down some breakfast and rush off to the day's activities. You feel guilty about oversleeping and missing your quiet time, and things just generally go wrong all day. Can you relate with this? You become more and more irritable as the day wears on, and you certainly don't sense God's presence in your life. That evening, however, you quite unexpectedly have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who is really interested in receiving Christ as Savior. Now here's the question. Would you enter those two witnessing opportunities with a different degree of confidence? Would you be less confident on the bad day than on the good day? Would you find it difficult to believe that God would bless you and use you in the midst of a rather bad spiritual day? So the question we're asking is, does God bless you because you're worthy? And now, I know that we know up here that the answer is, of course not. We know that it's by grace through faith, right? We know that. But down here, down here, I can often, we can often feel that God's favor in our life does have something to do with whether I do what I'm supposed to do and stay in line with what I'm supposed to stay in line with. Can I just, I need, I need some uh, church participation in this. Can anyone agree that you've dealt with that? Am I the only? Okay. Most of us do. That's our default mode. And I want to show you a chapter in the Bible that when I deal with that, that I go to. And I hope this is helpful for you. And it's pertaining to our passage today, but it's Romans chapter 4. It's Romans chapter 4, and it's talking about what Abraham learned in the chapters that we're preaching from, okay? It says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? In other words, what can we glean from Abraham, who is known as the father of faith? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham was able to gain God's blessing and his approval 
by what he did, by living perfectly, then you know what he could do? He could say, God, you owe me something. You owe me your favor and your blessing. He could walk in pride, but it says, but not before God. Verse 3, it says, for what does the scripture say? What did Abraham learn? Here it is. Abraham, what? Believe. Let's say that together. Abraham believed God, and it, his faith in God, was credited to him as righteousness. His, his faith in God pleased God. His, his faith in God made him acceptable to God. He didn't do anything. He didn't need to do anything but what? Believe in him. All right, I'm going to read it. Verse 4, it's going to get a little bit like you're going to have to really pay attention to this, okay? Because it can really stretch your brain. And that's okay. We need to use our brains, right? When we're going through the Word of God. Verse 4, now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. Or it's not credited as a gift. If you work for it, it's not a gift. If you, you know at Christmas time, do you give a gift not expecting in return? Sometimes, right? Sometimes it's just like a take where you just turn things around. I'm giving, I know they're going to give, are they going to give us a gift? Okay, we need to get them a gift. It's, that's not, that is not the kind of gift we're talking about. A gift is given saying, I don't expect anything in return. You don't, you didn't earn it. I'm just giving it to you because I love you. That's what, what it's talking about here. If you can work, if you can like, you know, work and make God favor, give favor to you, that's no longer grace. You earned it. He owes it to you. Verse 5 says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him. I love this. Who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That is such good news. God wants to be the one that brings us his blessings. Not that we've earned them, but that he gives it to those who don't deserve it. Now, I want to be clear here. God is calling us to obedience Okay, It's not just, oh, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and, you know, God will just bless me. If that's your attitude, it shows you're not really walking by faith. Okay? Because true faith, when you get what he's done for you and what he's giving to you, it causes you to want to become obedient. It produces the obedience. And that's what's going on in our passage today. God isn't saying, be perfect, Abram, and I will bless you. Rather, he's saying, look, okay, we got all these things that happened 13 years ago. But look, here I am again, God Almighty. Walk before me. In other words, come here. Walk right in front of me. Walk with me. Let me be your audience, your sole audience. Walk in, and walk blameless. Walk in the ways that I'm going to give you by faith because I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to bless you. That is what God is doing with Abram. And look what he does in verse 3. It says, then Abram did what? He fell on his face. This is a, resp this is a response, kind of like when your team scores uh, a touchdown. Like you don't go, oh, okay, they scored? What? Okay, you, don't do, you just do it, right? 
When Abram got what God was, was doing and is going to do for him, it caused this response for him to fall down on his face in awe and worship. Have you ever been in a uh, singing and you're like, uh, you're not really responding, but you're thinking, all right, what is everyone thinking right now? So, okay, I better raise my hands. Oh, what is everybody thinking? I better put my hands down. That's not what's going on here. His faith is, res- is causing him to respond by falling on his face in awe and worship. And when God sees his faith, when God sees the response of his faith, in, in verse 5 he says, no longer, no longer shall your name be called Abram. Now remember, Abram means exalted father. But your name shall be Abraham, which means father of many. For I have, get this, this is interesting. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Not I will, but I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. It's already done. It's as good as done by faith. And I believe that as God changes his name, this is such an encouragement to him. Why? Because what God is saying is, look, this new name is giving you a new identity. Forget your past. Don't keep going over your past of what you did. I, it's not about what you do. It's about what I'm going to do through you. So he should be encouraged that he can turn away from his past. And secondly, he is also uh, this new name, a father of many, it's going to remind him of the covenant. Every time someone calls him Abraham, he's going to be, yeah, I am a father of many. Now, just imagine him going straight to his guys, his servants, and his family goes, all right, listen, um, <clears throat> I know I'm 99 years old, but uh, my name's no longer Abram, it's Abraham. He had to, like, trust God to tell people, I am Abraham. So God, number one, he changes his name, and then secondly, he does a second thing. He gives him a sign, a sign of the covenant that's known as circumcision. And whenever God uh, gives a covenant, makes a covenant, or whenever a covenant is made, it is often accompanied with a sign. So, for example, when Noah, you all remember Noah? When Noah came out of the ark... God said, I will never, I'm going to make a covenant with all mankind that I will never flood the earth again. What was the covenant sign that he gave? Rainbow, Rainbow, correct. When you get married, when people get married and they exchange covenant vows, what do they often exchange with each other? Ring, right? That's something that, you know, uh, it, it, it reminds me that I'm married and it reminds others that I'm married, right? It's a sign. Just putting a ring on you doesn't make you married. But if you are married, it can be a sign that you are married. Now, when I was in uh, college, I had this spiritual awakening. And I remember me and my uh, good friend, uh, he's a, actually a pastor now. But we both decided that we wanted to have a sign that showed the, everyone at, in college that I'm totally committed to God. I wanted to have this, you know, radical sign. And, and back when, when I was young, uh, tattoos and piercings were not a big deal, uh, were a big deal, I'm sorry. Today they're not. They're so common, it's not radical today. But back when I was young, uh, if you had an earring, there was a certain side you're supposed to put it on for certain reasons, and uh, if you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, it was a big deal to have an earring, So, especially in the Christian 
community. You just don't do this tattoo stuff and this uh, piercings and all that kind of stuff. So me and him decided, we, we found a, a chapter in the Bible, Exodus 21, that talks about how, you know, if a servant wants to go out from his master or doesn't want to go out from his master and he wants to stay with him, you take his ear and you pierce it with an awe, and then you are, you know, you're his forever. So we took that verse, and we went to a jeweler, and we had the jeweler make uh, an earring in the sign of a fish. You know, the, remember that? And we pierced our ears, and we're like, yeah, baby, we are, we're, we're, being, we're making a statement here. And it was radical back then. Today, y'all are like, big deal. But um, anyway... Looking back, I think I just wanted to get a pierced ear, right? But that was my Christian way of doing it. So uh, maybe next week I'll wear that uh, fish. But, uh, but anyway, my point, back to the point, is that, I'm, that, that God, or as we are making covenants, it's often accompanied with a sign. And with the Abrahamic covenant, God institutes the practice of circumcision. And this morning, if you came in here... Not knowing what circumcision is, you're going to leave here this morning not knowing what circumcision is because I'm not going to go into detail. But circumcision, we need to understand, was not something new. Um, there were actually the uh, surrounding nations were already practicing it. Some were practicing it as a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. But when God instituted circumcision, he, he instituted it for a different reason. He wanted it to be a reminder and a picture of both a physical and a spiritual reality. He wanted it to be a picture of a physical and a spiritual reality. Verse 10 in our text says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here's what he told Abraham to do. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And I think right here it should say when Abraham heard that this is what the sign is, that he probably wanted to fall on his face again. Seriously, I'm 99 years old. Circumcision was a physical act that pointed to a spiritual reality, an outward expression of what? An inward reality, much like believer's baptism. Believer's baptism for, uh, for believers in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, that the first act of obedience is to be baptized. It's a picture of the burial with Christ in his death with Christ and being raised to life with him. That's the picture of what uh, baptism is. And with circumcision, it was to be a sign, a reminder of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his chosen people. So the outward cutting away of the flesh, pointed to the spiritual reality of what God wants to do in everybody's heart. Because he wants to circumcise the hearts of men. He, in, in other words, he wants to take the, the uh, desires of the human heart, which when we talk about cutting away the flesh, when we talk about the flesh in the spirit, we're talking about the sinful nature. He wants to take that change our hearts, and put to death the desires of the world that are within us. And so God is, back then and today, is calling to himself a people 
to be separated from this world. Not necessarily that we would be separated from this world physically, that we would come out of this world and live in a bubble, but that our hearts would come out of this world, and that will affect the way that we live within this world. And circumcision was always meant to teach this reality. Some would teach that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. That's one of the big battles that goes on in the New Testament. But you know what? Today, there are some that would teach that you must be baptized in order to be saved. But then if, if we did, that means that our work, there would be some work that we were participating in to help God save us. And God is wanting to make clear, no, what I'm doing right here, I'm God Almighty. I don't need your help to do what I'm doing. That's why he starts this passage by going, I'm God Almighty. I want you to understand I'm, I'm good. I want you to see who I am. And like I said, circumcision, circumcision, the outward, is always meant to, be, to point to the inward. Let's look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 and verse 8. It says, this is Moses talking to the Israelites. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. And here's why God is going to circumcise the heart. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And verse 8 says, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I command you today. And then in Romans 2, in the New Testament, Paul speaking to believers, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This, these two verses, these two passages are very encouraging to me. Because notice who circumcises the heart. Who circumcises the heart? Help me out here. God does, right? The problem is I try, to, I try through my methods to circumcise my heart. And it's, it's also encouraging that God knows that unless he circumcises your heart, you're not going to desire him. He's wanting to do a work in all of us to cause us to want to love him with our full heart and our soul and to obey him and to obey the voice of the Lord. And you know, when God circumcises the heart, it's painful. It will be painful because death is always painful. But in the end, it brings freedom. It frees us to seek and praise the God, to praise our God rather than to seek the praise of man. And so we see, we see two things in this passage, right? Number one, God takes Abram and he changes his name to Abraham. He gives him a new identity. Secondly, he institutes the practice of circumcision. And then, number three, he goes to his wife, Sarai. And he changes her name to Sarah. You know what Sarah means? Princess. Isn't that beautiful? He said, husbands, that's, that's what we should call our wives today. Call her Sarah from now on. Princess. Or at least treat her like a princess, right? 
This is convicting. Well, you know, this is actually ironic, though, and prophetic. Because how old is Sarai? Sarah, I'm sorry, her name is Sarah now. What is Sarah's name? Uh, how old is Sarah? She's 89, right, because she's 10 years younger than Abraham. And we've already talked about how in that culture, a barren woman was thought to be cursed by God. But God's saying, no, she's not cursed. She's a princess. The culture around would say, this is impossible for this lady, this old lady, to be a princess but not with El Shaddai, not with the God who through all things are possible. And just as a side note, um, the God of the Bible is often in our culture accused of being a chauvinistic God, right? But this passage right here shows that God is taking Sarah and elevating her at the same level with, with Abraham. He's going to bless her. Look what he says in verse 16. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. See that? Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall, I be, say, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old? Okay, she was 90 years old. All right. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I think he's saying she'll be 90 when she bears a child. Yeah, I thought, okay, all right, we're good now. Uh, if you're over uh, 55 years old, can you raise your hand? Just put your hand there. Okay. Marvin, how old are you? 70. 70. Let's... let's that is, and this is Marvin and Debbie. They're serving the Lord faithfully at age 70. By God's grace, I want to be there. Marvin, Debbie, Debbie, what would you do if Marvin came home and said, Honey, you're going to have a baby. She'd say, No way. And he said, But El Shaddai told me that, right? Would you, Marvin would fall, you'd fall on your face too, wouldn't you? And probably cry, right? 70, he's, he's 20 years behind, right? Almost 30 years behind Abraham. He's a spring, you're a spring chicken compared to Abraham. Talk to JC. Talk to JC. Uh, that's, well, that's true. I, okay, we're going to move on. <laughs> but look what Abraham, he falls on his face. He laughs. I think he's like looking at himself. He's, he's going, man, there's no way I can do it, but God, but through God I can do it. This is crazy. But then he, he says in verse 18, God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What is he saying here? I, I think he might be saying, God, okay, I know, I know you can do that, but why don't you just take Ishmael? Why don't you take my plan? You know what I've done? Why don't you just take it and kind of, you know, bless it? We don't have to go through all this, the baby stuff. I'm, I'm, I love you I, with, with Sarah. And what does God say? No. Right? He says no. Now, that word no there, um, it can mean no and yes. Kind of like, 
Because if you look at like, does anybody have an NIV study, uh, NIV Bible? It says yes in your book Bible. It says yes. But in the rest of the Bibles, it says no. So this is one of those words that kind of like yes, no. Well, he says no first because he says my plan is greater than your plan. My plan is something that is impossible for any man to take credit for. My plan will reveal something. It will reveal my glory. It will reveal that I am El Shaddai and that with me all things are possible. He says, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. No, I'm not going to do Ishmael. Allow Ishmael, the covenant go through Ishmael. And you shall call his name Isaac. Isaac means laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So he says no to making Ishmael the one who the, through whom the covenant will go. But then he says, but yes. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. This is going to be very important as we continue through the book of Genesis and even into the New Testament to see the line in which Jesus, our Savior, comes from. It came from the line of Isaac, the, the, the child of promise, whom Sarah, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. He says, yes, I will bless Ishmael, but when it comes to the covenant, it's going to come through Isaac to make it clear to everyone that this work is through me. I'm going to bring life in a place of death. This is such a great picture of the gospel. Sarah, There's no way Sarah is going to have a baby at age 99. It's like the tomb And God is going to bring life from death. God Almighty. Now, after this conversation, it says that God went up from him. And look what happens. Look what Abraham does in verse 23. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day. You see that? As God had said to him. He obeyed God immediately and and fully. This teaches us that saving faith produces wholehearted obedience. When we have faith in God, he changes our, our name. He gives us a new identity. He frees us from our past, and he circumcises our hearts. He changes our desires, freeing us to love, and to serve him. And maybe this morning you're here and you feel kind of like pigeonholed by your past. You feel like you've been pegged. You're thought of a certain way by by the people you're around. You're defined by your past failures, by your sins. I'm never going to change. You're frustrated And deep inside, you're saying, man, I would love to have a name change. Man, I would love for my heart to be circumcised like this, that I might desire God passionately like Abraham did with everything I am. And I want to say to you, if that's you and that's me, 
That is me this morning. And if that's you and you can identify with this, I want you to notice that Abraham, I'm going to say it again, did not change his name. It wasn't Abraham who changed his name. God did. And it was not Abraham who circumcised his own heart. It was a work of God. And you might be asking, okay, I get that, but how does that happen in my life? How does that change happen in my life? What is the knife that God uses to free our hearts to love and to obey him and to serve him? Do we have a part in that, is, is, I guess, is the, is the thing that, that I'm asking and that I asked as I was going through this passage. Do I have a part in it? And I would say yes. Jesus says, gives us the answer in John 8, verse 31. Here's what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide, if you cling to, if you embrace my word, you are truly my disciples. And look at verse 32. This is one of the most misquoted verses in all the world. But it says, and you will know what? The truth and the truth will set you free. The knife that God uses to circumcise the heart of man is his word. It's the word of God through which faith comes. And Jesus says, look, do you want to be set free? Listen to me. Stop trying to make yourself right with God. Listen to what I have done for you. Listen to my word. Embrace it. Cling to it. And as you do, you're going to see a life change. Now, some of us have been walking with the Lord for years, and you really are his child, but you keep having certain struggles in your life, and you're like, when is, th is this ever going to change? It's so frustrating, isn't it, to walk and to keep falling down and to keep stumbling over the same thing. And you know what the temptation to do the temptation is to go, well, I'm just going to be like Sarah and Hagar. That go do that. I'm going to do something on my own. And I'm going to abandon this walk of faith. Let me encourage you, even if you keep falling down, don't look for another way to circumcise your heart. Come to God. Stay in his word. Lord, cause your word to cut through. Keep, it may take years in some things. But don't abandon faith because there's no other way in which to have your heart circumcised and your name to be changed other than to understand what Jesus has done for you. Because ultimately, he is the fulfillment of everything we've been talking about with Abram. He is the one that will circumcise your heart and give you a new name. And this room, this room right here is filled with testimonies of people whose names have been changed by God and whose hearts have been circumcised. But you know what? Those same people whose hearts have been circumcised and their names have been changed, they're still struggling with things. They're still fighting. But don't focus on what you're failing in. Focus on what God has done for you because that is the way out. That is the way that will, over time, God will transform your life. Our God... Our God is El Shaddai. I want to remind us of that. Our God is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. 
So may we be a people that fully puts our trust in him, that we might experience his love and see his power in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen.